Good morning. Everybody doing good? I'm excited for today. Uh, we've got uh, softball and baseball and uh, hot dogs and stuff after service today. And it's also uh, my wedding anniversary today. So happy anniversary, babe. My wife's back there in the back in the pink dress. Um, we are in uh, second week of this series, Little Stories with Big Ideas. I love stories. I love great storytelling. See, one of the things about a great story, it's a great story at first glance, makes you think it's about one thing, when it's actually communicating a much deeper truth. How many of you remember the movie E.T.? You know, E.T. phone home. Yeah, right? Like, you think that movie's about a kid meeting an alien. Actually, E.T. is about divorce. It's about a heartbroken, crippled family who can't move on. That's what the movie's actually about, about the family dynamics of that. Uh, Star Wars, one of my favorite movies. Like, we think of Star Wars, we think of, you know, lightsabers and the force and the galactic forces of good and evil. Well, actually, what Star Wars is really about is the redemptive power of love and how a son who believes that his father can change uh, transforms his life. That's what that story is really about. Uh, then there's the movie Jaws. How many of you guys remember Jaws? Yeah, I saw Jaws a long time ago, and sometimes I'm still freaked out to go to swimming pools so that I can't see the bottom of it, because I think there's a shark in there. Uh, but you know, when I think of Jaws, what do we think of? We think of the shark, right? We think of the, that great, that great soundtrack. You know, and he's like, ah, they're coming to get him! You know, and the shark coming. But actually, that, that movie's not about a shark, which is why the sequels are no good. Uh, that movie's actually about a man moves to a new city in a new town. He's trying to figure out how can he uh, be a man? How can he provide for his family? How is he gonna make it work in this new town? That's what that movie's actually about. See, good stories, we think they're about something, but they're actually communicating a much deeper truth. And actually, uh, to kind of prove that point, um, I'm not gonna show you a clip of a shark from Jaws, but I'm gonna show you a clip from the movie Jaws that really illustrates the heart and soul of this movie. Uh, go ahead and check this out. Give us a kiss. Why? Because I need it. What a beautiful, beautiful statement. Jeremy's back there trying to figure things out. Uh, you good? Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, that's what that movie's really about, is that the heart and soul of that movie is that um, 
<laughs> it's, uh, it's about a father and a son and their relationship and a man trying to make a go of it. Uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. I, uh, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. I think everyone has heard the phrase, the Good Samaritan. You hear on the news how someone did a good deed and they're trying to call him a Good Samaritan. Uh, back in Denver, my friends had their baby at Good Samaritan Hospital. Uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan has so penetrated our culture, I think we've lost sight of what it originally meant to our first century uh, listeners of Jesus. Uh, and actually, that phrase, the Good Samaritan, has passed so much into folklore, it's succeeded crazily enough in changing the meaning of the word Samaritan. In fact, there's actually a really well-known Christian organization called Samaritan's Purse that's all about helping those most in need. But in Jesus' day, they never would have thought that when they heard the word Samaritan or Samaritan's Purse. I think many of us, we've heard this story growing up, uh, but we've misinterpreted what this parable is all about. It's like we thought Jaws was all about a shark, or, or uh, Star Wars was all about lightsabers, We've kind of misread, I think, what this parable is all about. So what is the parable of Good Samaritan really trying to tell us? Well, that's what we're going to be diving into today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me. Uh, Luke chapter 10. Here at Mosaic, we like to work our way through books of the Bible, and we're slowly working our way through. And we find ourselves in Luke chapter 10 right now, verse 25 through 37. Uh, and first, we need to start a few verses before the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because uh, we, if we take the story out of context, then we're really losing uh, why Jesus told this story. So we're going to set our stage. We've been working our way through the book of Luke for the last uh, 26 weeks. This is episode 26 of our journey through the book of Luke. Jesus has been teaching. He's been preaching. He's been healing people. He's been doing these amazing things. And as we go through this journey, we see that there's some religious people who don't really like what he's doing or saying. And he gets more and more opposition as he starts proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. It's radically subversive, and it's challenging the, the kind of religious quo, the, the, the establishment. And so we're going to see that a religious expert is going to jump in here, and he has a plan to test Jesus. Let's read that. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold... A lawyer, or a religious expert, stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Well, I think it's important to look at the parables of Jesus in their first century context. Otherwise, we'll just substitute our own context, our own cultural settings. So Jesus is hanging out with his followers. He's teaching probably either in the temple courts or he's outside somewhere teaching and preaching. And this expert in the law kind of pulls a Kanye West, you know, kind of pulls the mic out of Jesus' hand. He's like, hey, I have a question for you. And see, in the Middle Eastern uh, traditional culture, the teacher sat while he taught, and the student would show respect uh, by standing to ask their question. But here we see Luke is telling us that the expert of the law stands in order to test the teacher. He's standing to test teacher. Already we have a man whose heart and his actions are far from each other. 
by standing, he's saying that he's showing respect, but in his heart, he's just doing it to test Jesus. And uh, Ibn al-Tayyib, he's an 11th century Arabic scholar, notes that the lawyer did not ask, how can I obey God? How can I please God? Which is the natural question for a religious person to ask, but how can I inherit eternal life? See, even from the get-go, the religious expert's question is flawed. What can anyone do to inherit anything? Inheritance, by its very nature, is a gift from one family member or a friend to another. If you're born to a family or adopted into it, then you can receive an inheritance. But an inheritance is not payment for services rendered. But instead of answering the religious uh, expert's question, Jesus asks him, well, what, what do you think? What, what does the law say to you? You're a lawyer, you're an expert in law. What do you think it says? And he responds with a summary of what Jesus has been teaching. Jesus has summed up really the, the whole Old Testament law, 613 commands, into two basic ones, which is basically love God and love your neighbor. So what, what is Jesus saying here when he agrees with this expert and says, yeah, you're right, do this and you'll live. Do this and you'll get eternal life. Is Jesus saying that salvation can be earned? That if we love God and we love people, then we can earn our way into heaven? Jesus is saying if you can love God and you can love your neighbor perfectly, well then you have no need of grace. See, Romans 7 tells us the problem isn't the law. The problem is that we can't keep the law perfectly. Jesus says, yeah, go love your neighbor perfectly. Love God perfectly. That's what you need to do to inherit eternal life. And he's going to tell a story here in a little bit what it looks like to love your neighbor perfectly. Well, let's read on. And this next verse, this is the crux of this whole passage. Verse 29. This is important, right here. But he, desiring to justify himself, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So in order to justify himself, he asks, Jesus, who is my neighbor? See, he thinks Jesus is going to say, you know, your neighbor is your family members, your friends, the people in your country. These are your neighbors. Because then the Lord would be like, good, I have done all that. I not only have I loved the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I've loved my neighbors too. And the crowds would be like, wow, what an amazing guy. This guy's epic. That's how this Lord wants it to go down. He wants to justify himself and wants everyone to know how good of a person that he is. He wants to justify himself. To be justified is to be saved, and to be saved is to inherit eternal life. To be justified is this legal term that you're granted the status of one whom God declares as innocent and righteous. Well, because he wants to justify himself, he's shown that he wants to achieve acceptance before God on his own merits. You know what? I think you and I we do that a lot. We want to justify ourselves. We want to achieve right status with God based on what we've done. And I think if you're taking notes, you can write this down. I think there's really two primary ways that we seek to justify ourselves. Number one is through what I'm calling through hard religion. Through hard religion. Number two, through soft religion. Hard religion. That's what this religious expert is doing here. Hard religion is trying to maintain or trying to measure up to some external religious standard, some kind of external religious standard. See, this is kind of how I grew up. We take great pride that we don't get drunk, we don't gamble away all our money, we don't smoke weed. 
We're, we're good people. I know growing up, I took pride in my religious devotion. I thought that's how I could make sure that God was pleased with me. Looking back, I realized I was trying to justify myself. You know, I still struggle with this today. Last Friday, I went to a concert with Brian and Amanda from our church. And uh, the concert was actually at Treasure Island Casino. And uh, as we're walking through the casino, you know, uh, I just kept looking and I'm like, man, I don't go to the casino too often. And it's pretty funny because I was talking to Brian and Amanda on the way home. And it was like 1.30 in the morning because the concert was late. They're like, this is pretty funny. We're going to tell all our friends that we kicked off Memorial Day weekend by going to the casino with our pastor and staying out until 1.30 in the morning. And I was like, yeah, that's invite the church. That's good. But as I walked through the casino, you know, it's just so easy for me to look down on these people, the way they're dressed, what they're smoking, you know, they're gambling away all their money. But you know what? As I saw a little conviction in my heart of the way I was looking at other people, I realized this is probably where Jesus would be hanging out. Jesus is with people who uh, maybe we didn't agree with all the decisions. He was uh, accused of being a glutton. He was invited to the best parties. See, the problem is, if you're like me, we try to justify ourselves through some external religious standard. The other way we can justify ourselves is through what I call soft religion. This means living up to some internal standard of right and wrong. People who justify themselves through soft religion are really big on tolerance. You hear them talk about tolerance or being spiritual or promoting social causes like stopping global warming or making poverty history. I think there's a lot of people here in the suburbs that try to justify themselves through soft religion. They look down on the fundamentalist conservatives who try to look up to this standard and are hypocrites, but they're trying to justify themselves through what they believe is the right way to live and some internal standard by promoting some great social causes. But see, Jesus is trying to show that it's impossible to justify yourself, whether through hard religion, some kind of external standard you're trying to live it up to, or soft religion, some kind of internal standard. Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York City, uh, one of my heroes, he says, until you see that you are incapable of real love, you are incapable of love. Until you see that you are incapable of real, true, authentic love, you are incapable of love. That's what, this, that's what Jesus is trying to teach this religious expert. He's trying to teach this man and ultimately that each one of us, we can't love God perfectly. We can't love others perfectly. It's an impossible standard. We can't justify ourselves. And so Jesus now is going to tell this amazing story that seems like it's about one thing, but it's actually communicating a much deeper truth. And this parable falls into seven scenes. We're going to see there's parallels between scene one and seven, between two and six, three and five, and the main point comes in scene four, right in the middle. This is a kind of common model of teaching in ancient Middle Eastern teachings. Well, let's dive back in at verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by to the other side. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 17 miles long, and Jerusalem was situated at the top of this still, is a mountain. And you had to descend about 
3,500 feet on the journey down to Jericho. And the road passed through this barren, rocky wilderness that was actually very, very dangerous. A lot of robbers there. So in scene one, kind of to set the stage, we have this man who's traveling from Jerusalem up the mountaintop down through these valleys in this rocky, barren wilderness. And these robbers come and they beat him. They leave him for dead. Really, his only hope is that someone from Jerusalem is going to come along and save him. He's laying there, beaten, naked, just nothing that he can do. And this sets the stage. In scene two, we find a priest. A priest comes along, but doesn't offer any help. Now, the role of priest was handed down from father to son as a hereditary thing. And the priestly families living in Jerusalem, especially, were known to be wealthy. It's kind of like if you grew up, maybe you went to high school in Edina or Manitonka. That's like the priest family. When coming from a wealthy family, the priest was probably not hiking. He's probably not walking on his own. Jesus' listeners would have assumed the priest was riding a camel or a donkey. He could have easily transported this hurt, broken man in his you know, black Escalade with leather seats. That's, the priest, that's how the priest was rolling. However, the priest, he's got a problem. See, the religious law that the priest had to live up to stated that if he got within even six feet of a dead body, he would be ritualistically unclean. And then he'd have to go back to Jerusalem and begin the rites of purification, which are going to require him to buy a red heifer, burn it to ash, it's going to take at least seven days. He's going to have to stand at the eastern gate with everyone else who has sinned against God until another priest can come along and purify him. He's going to be filled with shame, with guilt, and also out of money because he'd be out of work for at least a week or two, and that's going to affect his family. Which means not only will he suffer, but his family is going to suffer if he helps this man. And he's not sure if he's alive or dead. How do we primarily know if people are like us culturally? How they dress and how they talk, right? Like you know a Southerner by their accent. You know a Minnesotan because of the way we say our O's, right? Right, right Bradley? We say phone. You know, that's what we do. This priest sees someone who's stripped. So he can't tell, is he one of, one of us or not? And he's unconscious, so he can't talk to him to know whether he's my tribe or not. And he's not sure if he's alive or dead, because he can't get within six feet to, to find out and get a pulse. So he's in a tough predicament here. But let's not be too hasty to judge the priest as being, you know, uh, just super selfish. He's in a tough spot. But he weighs the cost and decides, you know what, it's just not worth it. I don't even know if this guy's part of my tribe and my culture, because I can't tell by the way he's dressed, I can't talk to him. So I'm just going to go on the other side and go around him. And now we get to the third scene. Jesus tells us that a Levite comes along next. A Levite's kind of like a junior varsity priest, but they're never going to get called up uh, to bump up to varsity. See, the Levites assisted the, the priests in the temple, but weren't in the same economic class as the priests. That means the Levite is most likely walking instead of, you know, riding down on a, you know, dual exhaust camel or something. Don't think about that too hard. <laughs> but the road descends 3,500 feet, kind of like if you've been around Denver, it's 5,000 feet up and it kind of goes down. And so the thing about this journey is that you can see in front of you for many, many miles. And so you can kind of see ahead of you. And so the Levite sees the priest who he kind of serves and follows his example and says, oh, well, the priest didn't stop. So why? I definitely shouldn't stop. This to me is also a 
big lesson for those of us who are in leadership because people who are coming behind us are going to watch how we live and they're going to take our cues. Those of us who are parents, our kids are coming up behind us. They're going to watch how we live. How do we interact with people who are hurting, broken, and needy and going to see what do we do? And so the priest, the Levite, takes his cue from the, the priest and he just rushes around him too. Now, here's a super important detail you need to understand about this. This makes all the difference, or one of the things that makes all the difference, I think, to me, when I first learned this. So the temple in Jerusalem was served by three classes of people. You had priests, you had the Levites, and you had the everyday ordinary people who would help out in different areas. So the everyday ordinary volunteers, they were part of the set of teardown crew, they served in the nursery, you know, they made the coffee, helped the babies, they counted. That's what the everyday kind of ordinary people that helped out in the temple were doing. So as Jesus is telling this parable, like everyone knows it's priests, Levites, just the normal guy, the normal lady. And so they're hearing him tell this story. They're like, oh, I know where Jesus is going with this story. The priest is not the hero. The Levite is not the hero. It's going to be the everyday, ordinary, just Jewish person. If I was telling the story today, it'd be like, me and Pastor Nate are going down, and we ignore this person. And then some small group leaders, like just to pick on them, Paul and Elena, they're heading down, and they're like, ah, Nate never did stop, so we're not going to stop either. So then my eyes would be like, oh, of course, it's not the pastors, it's not the small group leaders or the elders, it's just the everyday, ordinary, volunteer church. That's going to be the hero of the story. That's what they're all thinking right now. But then Jesus throws him this major curveball, scene four. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. But a Samaritan, like seeing four, explodes in their minds. They're thinking, priest, Levite, ah, I'm the hero of the story. And it's not an everyday, ordinary Jewish layperson. It's a hated outsider who they consider a religious heretic and possibly a terrorist. That'd be like, it's like if I said, turn your Bible this morning. We're going to turn to the story of the good ISIS fighter. Be like, what? Like, I can't even emphasize how scandalous this was to the people who first heard Jesus tell the story. The Samaritans, they considered were half-breeds. They were half-Jewish and half-pagan. See, when Israel was led off into exile, the men and women who married their captors had children, and their descendants were the Samaritans. They had their own temple. They had their own religious system. Uh, they denied most of the Old Testament, uh, the 34 books that came after the first five. Uh, the, you know, there were actually common prayers in the synagogues at this time, when Jewish people would ask that God would not give forgiveness to the Samaritans. Like, that's a pretty strong level of hatred, isn't it? Like, God, please forgive us, but not that guy over there. Don't forgive him. Spend all your forgiveness on us, but not, not those people over there. They're not worthy of your grace, God. That's what they actually prayed. You can see there's not a lot of love lost between these two ethnic groups. Now, the Samaritan's not a Gentile. He's kind of a in-between. But he's bound by the same ritualistic laws as the Levite and the priest. He knows. He's not the type of dead body either. At least he's going to have to go 
back to uh, his temple and do the rites of purification. But the Samaritan is moved with compassion. And there's all these cultural things going on. And this time there was uh, laws that were blood vengeance laws that meant if you robbed me or hurt me, then according to the law, I could hurt you and everyone around you. Uh, in fact, that if a Samaritan was caught harming a Jew, the Jews could come in and wipe out like, his whole family. And so as this guy tends to this man on the road, people could think he's the one that beat him. They could think he had something to do with it. And so he is putting himself at risk. His life is at risk by stopping to help this man. In addition, he doesn't know this is a trap. It's a common trap. You have someone you know, laying there, it looks like they need help. When you stop to help, they come and beat you too. But he does stop. He's putting himself in harm's way. As he heads into town, he's letting everyone see that he stopped to help this man. And if those robbers are around, they don't hold oh, this guy. We can go after him too. He's assuming very dangerous risk. Well, in scene five, the good Samaritan, he treats the wounds of the man, which corresponds to the failure of the Levite to stop, the small group leaders who don't stop to give first aid to the man. And in scene six, he transports this man to safety, which corresponds to the failure of the priest me or Pastor Nate not stopping and to pull over and help this man. And the final scene, the parable, the Samaritan brings the beaten man to an inn and offers to pay for his lodging, for his medical bills. Not only is he risking his life, getting dirty, destroying his own schedule, and giving sacrificially of his money, he's doing this for a sworn enemy. Now why would Jesus share such a radical example that just exploded in his listeners' minds. I believe Jesus has shown us that the mark of a heart that has been touched by God, by the grace of God, will lead us to do deeds of compassion to the neediest, the most broken, and even the most ungrateful. Those that are far away from us demographically, racially, physically, socially, Economically. See, real love is costly. Real love is extreme. The mark of a heart that's been touched by the grace of God will be led to do deeds of compassion to the neediest, the most broken, and even the most ungrateful, those that are far away from us demographically, physically, socially, economically. Real love is costly. The good deeds don't save us, but we're saved to do good deeds. Jesus is teaching us that the way we treat people, particularly those of other races, those who are most different from us, those that are the costliest to help, shows if we're self-justified or if we understand that we are sinners saved by grace. See, if we're self-justified, we won't have the kind of love to go in that's most costly for those that are most different from us. That kind of love only comes from a sinner saved by grace. And this little story of Jesus was a really big idea. The kind of love that the Good Samaritan in this story shows has a big impact on this religious expert, this lawyer. Reading on, Jesus asked the man, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, you go and do likewise. The religious expert couldn't even say the word Samaritan. 
He could be like, you got me, Jesus. Yeah, that's Samaritan. He's like, yeah, I'm not even going to say his name. I'm not even going to say the name of that race. Because I'd so despise them so much. See, Jesus is trying to show us that until you are crushed and convicted of the magnitude of love required of us, you won't be humbled enough to receive the love that Jesus offers in the gospel. See, we are incapable of this kind of love that Jesus shows in this story on our own. You and I just aren't good enough to love like this. We're too broken. We're too flawed. The reality is the main point of this parable that I have missed so many times in the past that you and I are like the man lying in the road, beaten, naked, unable to save ourselves. We can't save ourselves any more than that man lying in the road can save himself. His only hope is that someone would come along and save him. See, until you can be a good neighbor, you need a good neighbor. You need Jesus to neighbor you. See, the point of this story is not just be like a good Samaritan, try harder, and do good deeds. The point is that we are all like this man lying in the road, broken, hurting, needing God's grace, God's love. If you've never come to the place where you recognize your own feelings and your own need to be rescued and redeemed, and your need to have someone else justify you, you need to reach out to Jesus, the great Samaritan, who didn't just risk his life for us, but he laid down his life for you and me. He doesn't just show mercy and compassion. He comes to where you are in the midst of your hurt and your pain. He gives everything for you. See, until you see Jesus as your great Samaritan, you'll never be a good Samaritan. Until you see Jesus as your only Savior, as your great Samaritan who comes to you in the midst of your brokenness, Helplessness, you'll never be able to show the kind of love that the Good Samaritan showed. See, good deeds don't save us, but then we are saved to do good deeds. The parable of the Good Samaritan tells us two main truths. Number one, the first is that each of us, none of us can measure up to the perfect standard that God requires. None of us can measure up to the perfect standard of perfect love that God requires of us. We're like all like that man, left in the road, left for dead. We cannot justify ourselves. The second truth is that Jesus calls us to live like the Good Samaritan. To follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to love as he loved, to serve as he served, to go where he went. If we try to do this on our own strength, we will be burned out. See, it's so easy to find our identity in what we do for God. I know I battle this. To fight that, we need continual, ongoing explosions of love bursting in our hearts. I know almost nothing about cars. Some of you guys know a lot about cars. But I've heard that a car is just really, an engine is an explosions of these love making the pistons go. When we worship, when we pray, when we spend time with God by reading our Bible, same grace and mercy with others. 
not to do good deeds to earn our salvation, to follow in the footsteps of our leader and teacher, Jesus. Would you stand with me? We're going to move into a time of communion.